overhear private, unfiltered conversations between the world's most influential and inspirational women. Now you can. Welcome to Leadership Global, where you'll hear from inspiring leaders who will help you define your vision, grow your leadership, expand your influence, and increase your impact to leave a lasting legacy. At Leadership Global, we feature inspiring connections with powerful women in business, politics, and entertainment that provide priceless guidance about the pivotal steps that push them in the direction of their purpose, their mission, and their dreams. Don't miss all the practical tools, resources, and quick tips that you can use today to show up, speak up, and step up in your career and personal life. Learn more about this confidential, supportive, and global community on our website, leadhershipglobal.com. You know, corporate governance is critically important because it creates a system of rules and practices that determine how a company operates and how it aligns the interests of all its stakeholders. Good corporate governance leads to ethical business practices, which leads to financial viability. Lisa Coletta, corporate governance change leader, is going to outline the eight critical corporate governance objectives, and we'll talk about maximizing transparency, protecting stakeholder interests, attracting investors, promoting accountability, mitigating risks, ensuring compliance, and improving efficiency and corporate social responsibility. Today, we're going to discuss how having great governance frameworks alleviates many pain points that leaders are now experiencing. Having worked in both the private and public sector with a career that spans well over two decades in governance at varying levels, Lisa has now defined, rejuvenated, and co-created governance frameworks and processes that enable effective decision-making at the highest levels of an organization. Now, before we dive in, let me tell you just a little bit about Lisa. Lisa Coletta is the founder and managing director of the Governance Collective, Australia's leading-edge corporate governance organization. She is a passionate corporate governance change leader who leads a collective of senior specialists that shape, drive, and implement right-sized governance policy and related frameworks and processes that holistically guide businesses. Lisa advised chairs, boards, committees, managing directors, and executives on how to implement heart-centered corporate governance, enabling active and adaptive management approaches to aid in the delivery of business strategy. Lisa, I am so excited to have you in this week's program and to get to know you a little bit better. So, you know, to begin with, I'd love to hear about your journey. What is the story of what led you to have such passion around this idea of corporate governance? Hello, Linda. Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. So um, my corporate governance journey uh, started around 20 or 25 years ago, believe it or not, when I found myself uh, in a role in an organisation where I was delivering on um, accountabilities uh, from an organisational-wide process. So in other words, I was in one of those operational roles deep, 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 deep in the bowels of a business and I had this policy content getting thrown, uh, thrown to us from a high 
and I had to somehow deliver compliance against that policy area for my little area of the world. And it was one of those things where I found very, very quickly that it was really tough to get people that you didn't own, in other words, didn't report to you, to do things to deliver outcomes from a corporate policy standpoint without yeah, having any authority over them. And I had to build great relationships and really sell this idea of how important it was for every part of the organisation to contribute to these areas so that there was really effective decision-making throughout the business. And so it's been a long time, Linda, a really, really long time. Um, I found over time, though, that the more I got to understand and appreciate how this area of focus provided value in an organisation, that I realised that there could be really amazing outcomes achieved from uh, from this type of work and enable businesses to really get, I guess, super successful and really revolutionise the way uh, people are making decisions in the organisation. And that's kind of how I how I got there. I love that. So, Lisa, along your journey of really focusing on governance for corporations, corporate governance, you must have seen boards that do an extraordinary job balancing power and authority, making sure that decision-making includes a wide and diverse array of perspectives and expertise, and boards that are really dysfunctional, where one person or maybe a small group of people really rule decision-making, and they guide and direct all decisions for the corporation, either down a productive path or maybe a path that's not so productive. Mm -hmm. So what is really the difference between a high-functioning board and a dysfunctional board? Uh, look, a great question, Linda. There, there are quite a few differences. A highly functioning board really recognizes that they are setting the tone from the top and how they behave will be uh, ricocheted or um, you know, spread throughout the whole organization. And so when they're operating, they're operating from a place where they have really, really great true intentions and they're coming from a space where they want everyone to win. So when they make decisions, they're doing it from a really great win-win true intention perspective. They want the shareholders to win because obviously the organization's there to, to achieve some commercial outcomes, but they also don't want to do that at the cost of employees not winning or suppliers not winning or um, you know any other key stakeholder in the business not winning. And so there's a very, very balanced approach to how power and authority is actually utilised in that organisation. And what also happens typically is that those great functioning boards like to define lines of accountability really, really cleanly. So everyone knows where to play, everyone knows how to play, and expectations and expected outcomes are identified really, really cleanly right up front. In the dysfunctional space, the complete opposite tends to occur. What you can have is you can have a few or perhaps even the entire board be in a position where they're recognising that their power and authority is kind of the ultimate objective from a delivery standpoint as opposed to driving the business towards outcomes. And what tends to happen in those organisations is that they drive um, they drive outcomes based on fear and compliance and um, those organisations and environments are not very pleasant places to be. Typically, um, those types of boards compress uh, the roles of the roles beneath them. So in other words, they don't tend to have great relationships with their CEO or their executive team, and they're not positioning in a way where they're leveraging the amazing skill sets they've got available to them. 
because in a lot of cases they feel that they know everything and everyone else around them knows nothing and so they're not actually tapping in uh, to those skill sets in, in that way. There tends to not be a lot of defined documentation around who plays where and there tends to be a lot of personal motive games playing and dare I say a little bit of fraud and corrupt conduct tends to sneak in there from time to time as well as well as conflicts of interest galore and and that recognition of having great governance is something that is you know they don't have time for it's not valued so two very very different environments we're talking about here Linda. Yes, absolutely, Lisa. And thank you for creating such a clear contrast between a high-performing board and dysfunctional board. That's really clean and easy to understand. Question for you, though, when you think about balancing power and authority within a board, again, dysfunctional boards can often be characterized by uh, a very powerful, perhaps director of that board or a powerful committee on the board that really drives decision-making, but what can you do to better balance the power and authority within a board to ensure that it is high-performing? A great question, Linda. There's quite a few variables that I consider when I go into organizations and rebalance power and authority. The first variable is that they actually have to want it. (laughs) It's one of those situations like many where um, there can't be change unless they want the change and they need, they're recognising that they need the change for the right reasons. So typically I'm stepping into organisations where that really powerful individual uh, has been wreaking havoc in the organisation for quite some time and they've retired or they've resigned or they've moved on in some way, shape or form and the organisation's kind of left with this dysfunctional sort of void of decision-making because typically those one or two individuals have every decision coming to them which means that organisationally they hadn't learned how to make decisions themselves. They didn't actually have a decision-making model and framework um, in place that enables them to make great transparent ethical decisions. So that's the first variable, that the the need for change needs to be there. In some cases I do have leaders, um, I guess, wake up from a very long sleep <laughs> and actually realise that they have been behaving that way and they don't want to move move forward that way any longer. So there are a couple of variables I support the organisation around because um, for me, great governance actually comes in three, three sort of streams. The first stream is obviously, you know, the documentation and the policies and the frameworks and all that kind of thing, which is really, really important so that people know that that one source of the truth of how things are done around here is actually documented. The second aspect is the culture and getting really, really clear about the culture they have as well as the culture that they really want to be able to achieve their outcomes that are defined in their strategy or their business plan. And the third part is our mindsets and the mindsets of leaders and so that everyone's really clear about what the objectives are and how we realign and, and reframe what we're doing and how we're moving towards our goals. In those situations, I enter into those organisations. What I tend to do is sit down with the leadership team and we co-create a decision-making framework and a governance framework that outlines how they want to make decisions and how they want to co-create and engage the brain's trust throughout the organisation to be able to deliver the outcomes that they're actually planning to deliver. And that's where we start. I also find that we tend to go back to fundamental documents like the board charter, which they may not have had a look at for a really long time, and role descriptions of CEOs and managing directors and other key roles so that they're really clear about defining the playground that those roles get to play in, as well as, most importantly, what delegations of authority 
or what decision-making powers those key roles have so that they're reclaiming the space that they have and that they need to be able to discharge their accountabilities or to do their jobs really, really well. And uh, that's that's the journey that we start with. The next stage we tend to go through is taking a really good look at defining the values and behaviours of the organisation if they haven't been defined or actually pulling the old ones out that they haven't been using and running a program where people are reminded or recognised uh, to have a really clear picture around what the expectations are around the behaviours of individuals in the business because they have had some poor modelling in the past and it's, again, just redrawing these new lines of expectation around how people behave and what great looks like again. So there's a lot in there, Linda. Obviously, uh, it's, it's quite a bit of work and quite a bit of time. But as soon as I find these processes start, the organisation starts focusing on what they really need to, and that is getting really, really clear about what resources they have available to them to move them towards their goals instead of all of these uh, power dynamics and interferences and risks that keep coming up and getting in the way of them achieving their outcomes. And so that's, uh, that's how I tend to do it. I love that, Lisa. Thank you for explaining. And, you know, as you were sort of talking about um, those different dynamics, it made me think about traditional board structure, traditional board interaction with management, and how that's become very different in perhaps the last 10 years that, you know, boards have really evolved in terms of their mission, their vision, their participation with management, their role, their set of responsibilities. And I know there's a big difference between a board of directors and a board of advisors, but beyond that difference, what have you seen in terms of the, the evolution and change in culture around boards? Oh, there, there has been a monumental shift. You're, you're absolutely right, Linda. There, there seems to be a much more, um, I guess, contemporary approach to around, around what a great board member looks like from a profile standpoint. In the past, there was a drive towards wanting board members that had extensive senior operational experience. So typically boards would be taking on general managers with who have got a you know 30-year, 40-year history uh, as subject matter experts in a particular area or a particular field, and they'd be attracting those individuals to, to their boards. And what tended to happen when those kinds of individuals got on those boards was that they were so used to being operational that that element or that recognition of the level of strategic oversight that they needed to undertake wasn't really part of their DNA. In fact, in a lot of cases, they didn't quite get what that word oversight really meant. And oversight is to oversight, and there's no doing involved in oversighting. It really is oversighting and making recommendations and, uh, and, and steering from a directional standpoint. And so these days, um, board members have a very different uh, skill set profile and a recognition that the roles that they've been in in the past have had both operational elements and strategic elements and recognising that the operational involvement or the operational experience that they've had has contributed to strategic outcomes that are being driven um, by the most senior level and by the board. So board members look and feel different now. And it's not just about gender. I mean, obviously, there's more and more recognition that having uh, diversity on the board is, is incredibly important. I do know of a couple of situations where organisations have said, okay, we need to get more females on our board. And they've gone and done that. However, they've been caught because they 
the individuals on the board, the, the males on their board, have actually hired in their own image. So in other words, they've got individuals, they've got females that actually operate and think the same way they do. So they didn't actually leverage that opportunity of diversity from a decision-making standpoint because they actually ended up with the female version of all the males <laughs> that were actually already sitting around that table. And, and their motives for doing that, I guess you could probably guess, it's it's much safer and, you, you know, you can manage the group think and, um, you know, for those individuals that like to control environments, you know, they can still tick off the fact that they've got, you know, 40% or 50% females on their board, but they're not really leveraging the benefits and the diversity that, that comes with a really, really great multi-skilled, multifaceted um, board. Yeah, I love that you brought up this trend towards ensuring that there is greater diversity across boards. And you're right that, of course, people tend to hire in their own image, regardless of gender. But being named to a board of directors in an established company may seem out of reach, especially if you're under 50, a woman, or you haven't made it to the C-suite yet. But that's not necessarily the case anymore. Last year, S&P 500 boards named 428 new directors, according to Spencer Stewart's board index. And of them, 40% were women. 17% were under 50 and only a third were active or retired CEOs. So mm -hmm. it seems to me that open board seats are increasingly filled by younger, more diverse candidates who, who come from executive positions, maybe two or three levels below the C-suite and developing and using your network is probably the most direct path to getting on a board. So Absolutely. what do you think that you know, that sort of surgence of more diversity on boards, what does that do to the culture of a board and being able to manage a board with sort of a protocol or a system that still is very true to the mission and vision of that company and that board? Uh, look, it actually does quite a few things when you, when you have such a richness of skill sets uh, in the board environment. The first thing it does, it contributes so strongly to a really amazing corporate governance ecosystem. Corporate governance, I think, it's one of those things where individuals have experienced the traditional elements of it, where it's kind of old school and cumbersome, lots of red tape, and um, it makes it, I guess, in the past, quite hard to get decisions made throughout the business. Whereas with this rich injection of, of skill sets, it enables the corporate governance uh, ecosystem and environment to achieve uh, really, really great insights, uh, really richness of decision-making and perspectives that are actually provided as part of that. And for those of you that are, I guess, not quite clear on what I'm referring to when I'm talking about this corporate governance ecosystem, I'm talking about all of those systems and processes the organisation has internally to enable it to, um, to achieve really fantastic outcomes. For example, the risk, the risk management framework is an incredible framework to provide insights and perspectives around what's actually occurring across the business and how controlled and managed the outcomes are to deliver against the strategy of the organisation. When you have these incredible humans in the board environment, they're taking the insights around the risk position of the business and they're understanding two things. They're first understanding how the uh, the risks are being controlled and managed and what the treatment plans or the, the propo proposed actions are to actually move forward uh, to manage those risks. But they're also utilising the skill sets they have from being at those lower levels to be able to provide an insight and a perspective 
that the traditional board members wouldn't normally have. And that is around utilising technology and enabling the business to, instead of seeing risk as a negative thing, which means that it's things we shouldn't be doing and uh, driving the risk appetite towards very, very low levels of appetite to actually the opposite. And that is to recognise that when we really understand what's happening around us, it can either close us down or it can actually open us up to incredible opportunities and perspectives that they wouldn't have any other way. And that's that's what I find happens. I love that, Lisa. And so really what you're saying is that what a board wants are new members who have the skills and experiences that are transferable and really will make an impact on that business. And I find that generally boards need a mix of members with practical experience and operational experience running large teams and having profit and loss responsibilities for a business line, but having different perspectives professionally and socioeconomically is more desirable than ever. Many boards want to boost diversity in age and gender and race and when relevant, even geography. Um, Mm -hmm. So board recruiters, it seems, are particularly looking for next-gen execs who are under 50, tech-savvy, and also have broad business perspective, it seems. So if you are interested in being able to join a board that fits your culture, how would you go about doing that? Really ensuring that the culture of the board and the company is one that is really open to your perspective, your world experience, the skill sets and experiences that you bring. And how have you seen, you know, some of the more feminine leadership skills really embraced by boards now, things like empathy and listening and um, being able to create deep, rich relationships with those around them on the board and also with management. Management. Yeah, look, it's a it's really another really great question, Linda. It's it's one of those things where um, you're right, in this day and age, board roles tend to um, arise um, through relationships. People need to know you, they need to like you, they need to trust you. Uh, they need to understand where you've been and where you are now and how this board role is not only going to provide a richness to you and your world, but also how it's actually going to enrich the environment that you're actually entering into. The more you understand, it's like any role, I guess. Um, when you join a new organisation, you know, the the level of, I guess, assessment and uh, insights and learning around the culture that they have and, and how you're going to be aligned with that culture is really important. The more you can actually get some transparency or some perspective around that which I know sometimes it can be a little bit hard it is really important to be able to do that I personally um I personally like to ask questions around the values and behaviors because typically the values and behaviors of the business are published um on their website or wherever else and um taking a really good look at those values and behaviors and recognizing you know who I am and what mine are and whether or not they're actually aligned and they match or not it's a really good start and then I'd be asking some questions of uh, some key contacts uh, or building some relationships in that environment to get really clear about whether or not the organisation actually walks and talks the values and behaviours that they've published on their website. I guess it's one of those things where if they're treating their values and behaviours as a piecemeal sort of thing that they have to have to demonstrate that they've got that component of governance in place, it's actually different to having an embedded culture where this is actually who we really are. And so when you're joining us, 
this is actually the people we want to attract. And the more aligned you are to the values and behaviours of the organisation, the more you know you're joining the right culture and the right environment and you're going to be uh, able to achieve the outcomes you'd like to achieve. So, oh, my gosh, what great yeah. advice, what wonderful insight. You're right. And in addition to, as you said, industry-specific, managerial, financial skills, many boards are very careful now to bring on board members with a high level of emotional intelligence, the ability to collaborate, work well on a team, and a strong ethical foundation. And as much as they are interviewing particular board candidates, those candidates should also be interviewing the company to ensure that they really do have a strong set of principles and values that align with the candidate. So I think that's just absolutely brilliant. Now, Lisa, you've worked with small boards, big boards, you've worked with medium-sized corporations, you've worked with the largest firms in the world. And what is it that you think um, unites a board that's ready for transition. So when they bring you in, there's something that's not working about that board. There's something that is not optimal in the function of the board. So they bring you in to assess that and to help them transition that board, to help them evolve that board. So what? how have you helped companies through that kind of transition? And how have you helped the board's grow and develop and advance in their purpose, their mission and vision? Yeah, I've, I've actually done it in a few different ways, depending on, on the size of the board, as you say, as well as uh, where they are from a maturity standpoint. Um, I find when it comes to boards that are, um, that are only a couple of people, two or three people who are the business owners, uh, who are the board members, who tend to also be the you know managing directors and the CEOs of, of the organisations, um, there's a really, I guess, fundamental shift for them when they bring me in because what I'm enabling them to do is to recognise that it's not in their interest to wear multiple hats at the same time. Being chairman and being CEO is, is not an optimal position and, uh, and better practice recognises this concept called agency theory, and that is to have someone independent of the, of the chairman of the organisation uh, be the CEO so that they're able to deliver on the operational outcomes required by the business in a, in a more independent way instead of wearing both hats. And that's a really significant cultural shift for, for some organisations when, when that actually occurs because they're used to the business owner wearing both the strategic oversight as well as that operational hat at the same time. And so team members across the organisation don't know if they're dealing with the chairman right now or what they're dealing with the CEO right now because there tends to be no delineation around um, their motives for decision making, whether it's more strategic, of more of a strategic nature than operational. What tends to happen in those environments as well, Linda, is that they tend to not have documented business plans and strategy documents. They tend to not have uh, defined delegations of authority where um, there's a recognition that every decision doesn't have to come up to that one person. So when I'm going into the organisation, there is a fundamental cultural shift around a couple of things. The first thing is that they're actually no longer going to be relying on people. They're going to be relying on process. Um, so it's not about the person who happens to be in that role. It actually is about the role and the nature and the accountability of that role and the person that's holding or sitting within that role. So that, that's the first aspect around it. 
The second shift that tends to happen in those environments is that um, we get very, very clear about what performance looks and feels like. And um, we put in place a performance planning process where individuals can get really clear about what their objectives are for the coming year and how their contribution um, throughout the year actually aligns with the strategic goals of the organisation. And that tends to be quite new for them as well. So those smaller size uh, organisations, I I tend to um, do quite consistent areas of focus in that space. When you're moving up the line to the medium and larger size businesses, what I tend to find is that there may be one or two aspects of their corporate governance environments or their corporate governance frameworks, be it risk or delegations or policy and procedures or whatever else, that they've had a, dare I say, and I've got to choose my words a little bit carefully here, They've had an individual in a role for a long period of time that was accountable for managing that particular area of focus. And what can happen sometimes is that the business's needs in that space can grow exponentially and not linear. So in other words, um, the organisation has moved and changed and it's grown quite quickly and the individual in that role didn't quite have the same level of uh, capability to keep up with it. And uh, in a lot of cases, which is actually, it's not a bad thing, but in a lot of cases, boards tend to uh, wait for that individual to either realise and have the real conversation to position them in a role where they're, they're better suited. And then they say, okay, we've got a little bit of catching up to do. And it's that difference between evolving from an evolutionary standpoint versus a revolutionary standpoint. So those organisations tend to bring me in when they're ready for a revolution. They're saying, okay, we've had this in this situation for a little while now. We're hoping this individual would lift. And it's not about the individual. We know we've grown faster than they've been able to keep up. Um, We'll bring Lisa in and we will have a look at a better practice framework. And that tends to be how it plays out. And so what I do is I get really clear about who in the business will be owning that framework after I walk away. And we co-create, we develop and co-create and implement that framework effectively so that once I've uh, finished my piece, the individual that I've co-created with will be left with a framework that they can maintain and continually improve. And uh, that tends to be one of the key variables that I see in those larger organisations. Long answer there, Linda. Sorry. (laughs) No, that was terrific, Lisa. Thank you so much. All right. So one last question for you. Now, I feel like all along the way, you've provided such incredible leadership advice, but I'm going to very directly ask about the leadership advice that you have received in your career that you'd like to pass on to our audience um, that really has made a difference for you in your leadership journey. Uh, Look, I've been really fortunate that I've been around some absolutely incredible, inspiring humans. One of the pieces of advice that I found the most valuable is actually something around this, I guess, this concept where you're in an environment that you hope ends up being a really, really great opportunity for learning and growth. And you you actually find that it's not actually what you thought it should have been. And you had early indicators and didn't realize The piece of advice I was provided, Linda, was to get really, really clear about what my head, my heart and my gut was actually telling me about those environments and to actually listen to my intuition. And, you know, as much as I love to be a really positive, loving human, sometimes waiting and hoping that it's going to turn into something that it's not is actually worse than recognising that you're not in the right environment at the right time. 
and that you know it's better serves you to be really really clear about what it is that you really need and make the real decision when you need to make it so I love that. and love the idea of listening to your intuition too and not sort of squelching that voice that says this yeah. doesn't feel right this doesn't, doesn't seem right. right and being able to make a very clear decision to step away that's such yeah. valuable leadership advice and we have to be real about these decisions too linda because sometimes it's not like i've you know i've kind of sat with it and gone oh my gut's telling me something my heart's you know, my heart's not singing in the way I hoped it would and my head's going, this is just not the way it needs to be. But we have to make some rational decisions as well around the financial realities and and how we actually move from where we are to where we want to be. And so just to add to that just slightly is that I've learned that when you're running away from whatever situation you're in now, if you're running away, wherever you land, that lesson's going to follow you or that situation is going to follow you as opposed to being really clear about what you need and what you want and defining that right up front, you're actually running towards what you want and not running away from what you don't want. And I think a lot of us have had that experience where we've been in environments where we're running away, hoping the next place will be better, but we haven't really defined what great looks like. So defining and being really clear about what we want and then running towards it seems to have a, uh, a much better universal result than running away from what we don't want. So little added extra piece of advice that I've learned, dare I say, the hard way. <laughs> I think we all can relate to that, Lisa. So yeah. thank you, Lisa Coletta. I am so grateful that you've spent so much time sharing your wisdom, your insight, your experience, your expertise with the audience of Lead Hership Global. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, Linda. Thank you. Thank you for joining Lead Hership Global's award-winning podcast. As a member of Lead Hership Global, you have the opportunity to meet inspirational leaders, create lifelong friendships, and be surrounded by others who are invested in your success. Join our global community of inspiring women in leadership, women who will help you create greater levels of impact, support your personal and professional breakthroughs, and help you accelerate your success. Don't miss out on the opportunity to show up, speak up, and step up in your professional and your personal life. Find out how you can join us at leadhershipglobal.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.